Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 288, Russian and Soviet Cuisine, Part 1. Last time, we finished our series about the mighty Volga River. Today, we change gears and try a more lighthearted and tasty topic, Russian and Soviet cuisine. When I first came up with this idea, I expected to just do a single episode. But after gathering my resources, that thought would have been shameful, as Russian and even Soviet cuisine deserves much, much more. My resources included The Food and Cooking of Russia by Elena Makhonko, Russian Cookbook by Kira Petroslavskia, the Russian Heritage Cookbook by Lynn Vizon, Beyond the North Wind by Dara Goldstein, and CCCP Cookbook, True Stories of Soviet Cuisine, as well as Mastering the Art of Soviet Cooking by Anya von Bremsen. Today, I'm going to try to take you on a mouth-watering tour of my favorite Russian dishes, as well as talk about the struggles that Soviet cooks had with all the shortages that they endured between 1917 and 1991. While the Soviet era was fraught with tough times, there were some real gems to discuss and hopefully enjoy. I will admit right from the start that some of what I will be describing as traditional Russian dishes may cause a great deal of controversy amongst those with Russian, Ukrainian, or other Slavic ancestry. There are so many ways of making each dish that there truly is no real right way, just the one you like the most. If you want to discuss your version, please go to the Facebook Russian Rulers History Group and share your thoughts. I thought long and hard about how I would lay out the story of Russian and Soviet cuisine, but it came down to my memories and stories that surrounded my childhood and all of the wonderful meals that accompanied it. Additionally, I'll give a bit of history to some of the dishes and how they became part of the everyday life of the people of Russia and those who immigrated to other countries. Russian cuisine according to some historians, is divided into four distinct eras. Old Russian cuisine, which covered the 9th to the 16th century, Old Moscow cuisine, found in the 17th century, the cuisine which was introduced during the reigns of Peter and Catherine the Great, and finally, Petersburg cuisine, also thought of as the French era, which took place from the end of the 18th century into the 1860s. Research I've uncovered indicated that there were many reasons for the types of cooking done in the first two eras because of the types of ovens found in Russia. In the pre-Petrine time, most of the ovens, known as masonry stoves, were open and would start off blazing hot, which was conducive to making breads and pies. The main food groups cooked when the oven was hot were bread, grains, and other foods containing starch. As the ovens began to cool, they would make other foods like pork.
porridge, fish, and the occasional meats that required less heat. At the lowest temperatures, they would braise vegetables and other slow-cooked dishes. With the reforms of Peter the Great came a new type of stove known as the Dutch Range. This was more like what we are used to today, as it would cook foods in pots and pans on top instead of inside an oven. This would lead to more complex dishes with greater variety. This would change with the reign of Peter the Great as he introduced Western means of cooking, including these stovetop methods. Soups and the use of minced meats would become popular. And in the last era, the introduction of French, German, and Italian foods would enter Russian cuisine. Of course, there was a significant disparity between what was available to the peasants versus the wealthier Russians. This would be more apparent due to the harsh conditions caused by the long and brutal winters. This would lead to many of the famines that would plague Russian history. Crop failures, of course, would always hit the poorest members of society far more than the more affluent people. The most influential part of Russian society regarding food was, of course, the Russian Orthodox Church. They split the year between feasts and fasts, with the latter accounting for approximately one half of the days of the year. I remember how strict my mother was about keeping the fasts, especially the major ones, like the six weeks before Easter. Now that we're done with the history of Russian cuisine, let's get into the actual dishes that make it so unique. While there were literally hundreds of foods that define Russian cuisine, I'll be talking about those I have the most connections to, which is still pretty extensive. My first one is I will prepare this weekend with my wife. We've made this time and time again during our 28-year marriage, as she and the rest of my family would crave it. The dish is known as pilmeni. When you make pilmeni, you don't make a few. You make hundreds. Or, in the case of my mother's church, they would make thousands to sell, raising money for the church. While researching this quintessential Russian dish, I actually came upon the pilmeni.com website. Here is what they said about this scrumptious meal. Quote, Pilmeni forms the heart of Russian cuisine and culture. It is served in every Russian restaurant and cooked in homes across the country. And every family likes to think it has its own special recipe. Now, when my mother would make it, they would work for eight hours making these thousands of pilmeni by hand. It was just amazing to watch these women mostly, and some men, doing this for, you know, just a fundraiser for the church. So what is pilmeni? Well, it's a kind of a type of dumpling consisting of a particular filling wrapped in thin, uneven dough, usually accompanied with plenty of sour cream. The fillings could vary, but essentially are minced meat, pork, beef, sometimes lamb, fish, or just mushrooms. They can be very spicy depending on the amount of herbs, 
onions, and black pepper used in the seasoning. What I remember growing up as a kid was my mom making the fillings on whatever we had available. If it was fish or beef, she would add finely chopped onions and parsley. She would roll out the dough very thin and lay the small clumps of filling on the dough. She would roll them up into little dumplings that would be frozen and stored to use in the future when we needed to, when things were maybe financially tight. Of course, she would make a batch of, for dinner that night, which always excited me, except when it was a fish pill mani. That was never my favorite, but it wasn't bad enough not to eat. It's often served in a bit of broth, followed by a dollop of smetana. Smetana is the name for the types of sour cream traditionally found in Central, Eastern, and Southeastern Europe. It's a dairy product produced by souring heavy cream. It's similar to creme fraiche, which is 28% fat, but nowadays it's mainly sold with 9% to 42% milk fat content, depending on the country. Next up is another of my personal favorites, a soup known as shi or cabbage soup. When sauerkraut is used instead, the soup is called sour shi, while soups based on sorrel, spinach, nettle, and other similar plants are called green shi. My mom and grandmother used to call this a version of borscht, which is technically accurate. And here's a great story. Interestingly, when I brought my wife-to-be at the time to my parents' house, my mother called to tell me she was making borscht for her. I thought this would be the cabbage soup I was so used to. No, it was borscht with beets, a vegetable I found out that my wife really does not like in the least bit. She did eat it, which was impressive to me, one of the reasons I married her, but uh, it was the very last time. Now, she can be made in so many ways, it's truly versatile which perfectly lends itself to the many scarcities that Russian families endured over the centuries. The history of she goes back to Kievan Rus, after the Byzantines introduced cabbage to their northern neighbors. There are three main reasons why this dish became so important and beloved. It was simple to make. Meat could be added when available, even fish. And thirdly, you could easily freeze it and take it with you to warm up when needed. So people back then would, you know, make these batches of big batches of this and take small amounts, have it frozen like ice cubes, you know, large ice cubes. And then when they were at work, they could heat it up and they would have their meal. Our third dish, it's also a soup and probably the most famous of all, borscht. Well, typically as a base of beets that make it red, there are many other varieties, such as sorrel-based green borscht, rye-based wheat borscht, and the aforementioned cabbage borscht. It is typically made by combining meat or bone stock with sautéed vegetables, which, as well as beetroots, usually include cabbage, 
carrots, onions, potatoes, and tomatoes. Depending on the recipe, borscht may include meat or fish or be purely vegetarian, which was great during the Easter fasts. It may be served either hot or cold. And this is another example of that incredible versatility that represents Russian cuisine. Borscht is actually an ancient food that predates Kievan Rus and is found predominantly in Eastern Slavic communities. Over the years, it has evolved into so many staples in almost every Slavic country, from Ukraine, where we believe it started, to Armenia, Iran, Czech, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and even as far away as China. Within Russian cuisine, a popular version was with sausage, something that was promoted during Soviet times by Anastas Mikoyan. Others include Siberian-style borscht, characterized by meatballs, Piskov borscht with dried smelt from the local lakes, monastic Lenten borscht with marinated kelp instead of cabbage, and the Russian Navy borscht, Flotsky borscht, which, whose defining characteristic is that the vegetables are cut into square or diamond-shaped chunks rather than julienne. Porridge is considered one of the most essential dishes in Russian cuisine. Although many purists might disagree, kasha is pretty much any grain cooked together to form a porridge. In the last episode, I mentioned how I had a humorous story about kasha. About 15 years ago, I headed back to New York to teach a class that allowed me to meet with one of my old high school buddies, Wayne. He suggested we try a Russian restaurant on the east side of Manhattan. The decor and ambiance were classic Russian, with rugs on the walls and semi-dark lighting. The waiter asked what we wanted to drink, and we both responded with a shot of vodka. He thought it was a wise choice, especially when we asked for it to be really cold. After we had our drink, we placed our food order. I asked for some piroshki, which I'll discuss in a while, with some beef stroganoff, another dish of course I'll discuss. He asked if I wanted it with noodles, potatoes, or kasha. I, being adventurous, replied, I take it with kasha. He guessed and said, and I quote, and I'm going to try to give you the accent he used, because I remembered it's just indelibly etched into my brain. Quote, kasha? You want kasha? Nobody likes kasha. Both Wayne and I laughed, and the waiter tried to convince me to change my order to no avail. Well, it wasn't the finest choice I've ever made in a restaurant. It really wasn't half bad. Kasha is genuinely an adaptable meal with so many types of grains that can be incorporated into it. The most popular, buckwheat, millet, semolina, oats, barley, and even rice. Sometimes they're cooked in milk, other times in a broth. For those better off during the pre-Soviet times, it was typically eaten as a side dish with various meats and fish served as the main course. 
Now we're going to head over to the appetizer side of Russian cuisine with one of my favorites, piroshki. Piroshki is a diminutive of pierogi, and it's a baked doughy comfort food made of yeast-leavened dough with filling wholly enclosed. The fillings could be ground meat, mashed potato, mushrooms, boiled egg with scallions, or cabbage. I've had them all, and then some. You could also make a sweet version, using fruits like apples, cherries, apricots, lemons, jam, or tvorog, which is kind of a white fermented cheese. Blini was something I remembered from my childhood that my mother or grandmother would make for brunch after church services on Sunday. They're thin griddle cakes similar to crepes, traditionally made with buckwheat flour and yeasted batter. It would be topped or filled with butter, smetana, fruit preserves, or caviar. Oh, I absolutely loved the fruit version. Although the caviar topping with smetana is one of my favorites as an adult. Blin, the singular name for the dish, predates Kievan Rus and has been a staple for millennium. One of my favorite memories of the time of Easter Lent was two dishes that were made towards the end, preparing for the breaking of the fast, kulich and pasca. Kulich is baked in tall, cylindrical tins. My mother and grandmother made them in old coffee cans, which they saved throughout the year. When cooled, it is decorated with white icing, which slightly drizzles down the sides, and colorful flowers, or in my family's case, sweet sprinkles. The smell in our kitchen was absolutely divine but we were not allowed to try any of it until after Easter Sunday service. The torture was sublime. Typically, kulich was served with pasca, that sweet, soft dessert made from tovork or cottage cheese, which is white, symbolizing the purity of Christ, the paschal lamb, and the joy of the resurrection. It's made in a triangular mold with the letters XB inside, which would show up on the Pascha when finished and unveiled. The XB translates to Christ is risen, or Christos Voskresi. This is the greeting you would give to a fellow Russian Orthodox Christian for the six weeks following Easter Sunday, with the proper response being, Vaistuno Voskresi, or He is risen indeed. Aside from the tvorog, additional ingredients such as butter, eggs, smetana, raisins, almonds, vanilla, spices, and candied fruits can be used. Typically, the pasca is cooked and then cooled slowly. Afterward, it's placed in the traditional wooden mold, assembly called a pasochinitsa, with a layer of cheesecloth protecting the mold. Then it would be kept in a cold, but not freezing environment like a refrigerator or a cold cellar. I have to tell you, my whole family would be drooling over the thought of having some Pascha and Kulich after Easter. 
fish was one of the most important proteins that many Russians and, in particular, peasants would eat, especially during Lent, when other forms of meat were forbidden. There were numerous freshwater varieties such as carp, sturgeon, salmon, pike, and trout. They would be preserved via salting, smoking, or pickling. To this day, I loved my pickled herring and smoked salmon for breakfast, much to the rest of my family's disdain. Another staple in Russian cuisine is kotleti. Think Salisbury steak. It's minced meat, typically beef or pork, and in more modern times, chicken. Although fish can also be used. You would bring ground meat, pork, onions, and bread together in a bowl and mix thoroughly until you have a firm consistency. Some would coat it with breadcrumbs, while others, including my family, would leave that out and deep fry them until golden brown. My family would top the kotleti with a creamy mushroom sauce, along with, of course, the all-important smetana. One dish I rarely was able to chow down in my youth is also known as aspic, jelly meat known in Russian as kolodets. It's the jellied chopped pieces of pork or veal meat with some spices, as well as some chopped up pieces of carrots and other vegetables. Thankfully, it was not a stable in the Shouse house. Otherwise, there might have been a significant revolt amongst the uh, men of the family. One of the things I always learned about Russian cuisine, especially regarding meat, is that nothing, and I mean nothing, is left behind. All of the animal is used, as it was considered disrespectful of the animal to leave anything unused. The liver, tongue, and several sweetbreads like the thymus and pancreas would be prepared in various ways. Typically, in old Russia, the peasants would be allowed to use those parts of the cow or lamb that the nobility would think were beneath them. It would lead to all sorts of novel and unusual means of preparation, many of which I will avoid recounting today as they can be pretty bizarre based on our present-day palates. Our last Russian classic is the one that is likely to be the best known in the world, and that would be beef stroganoff. This is one thing my mother could make, and she was not a very good cook, but she could make it as well as anything else. It would only be used for those special occasions when good friends would come to our little apartment in New York City. Everyone, and I mean everyone, wanted to be invited, as the meal was so special, so delicious, that it would make your mouth water for the week leading up to the Saturday evening feast. Legend suggests that its invention comes from French chefs working for the Stroganoff family. But others point out that the recipe is a refined version of older Russian dishes. The use of noodles as the base of the dish is likely the more elegant version, as there are others who use thinly sliced fried potatoes, while, as I mentioned earlier, kasha could be substituted. Whatever the truth... The dish is basically, basically thinly sliced pieces of beef, beef or veal broth, added along with onions, mushrooms, and dill, 
with copious quantities of smitana mixed in and topping the meal as well. Other versions, those I prefer when making it myself, include both mustard and tomato paste, which helps to richen the sauce and adds depths of flavor. And I got to tell you, my family, when they hear beef stroganoff is on the menu, they're like, we'll be over my, my youngest daughter. Uh, she lives off campus right now, at, you know, here in Reno, Nevada, lives halfway across town. But when she hears dad's making beef stroganoff, she'll make it to the house. So whenever I want to see her, <laughs> I know which meal to make. The last class of dishes we will talk about today is what is known as zakuski. It's akin to appetizers, but so much more as it's a part of an authentic Russian dining experience. In his work, The Siren, Anton Chekhov wrote, quote, The best zakuska, if you want to know, is herring. You eat a piece of it with a little onion and mustard sauce right away. While you still feel the sparks in your stomach, eat caviar, plain, or, if you wish, with a bit of lemon, then a bit of salted radish, then again some radish, then again with some herring. But best of all, saffron milk cap mushrooms. If you chop them up as fine as caviar and see, eat them with onion, with olive oil. What a feast. Two of the more popular zakuskis are open-faced sandwiches, often made with either pumpernickel or rye bread. They usually only have two or three ingredients, often chosen for contrasting flavors, color, and texture. Fish, caviar, ham, and eggs are commonly used along with butter, horseradish, lemon juice, and mustard. The other is stuffed eggs. The eggs are hard-boiled, with the yolk being removed and combined with all sorts of ingredients. Cooked and minced chicken liver, ham, sardines, or anchovies, along with the identical additions as with the open-faced sandwiches. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. Join me next time when we continue our journey into Russian and Soviet cuisine. We're going to enter the world of soups, salads, fish, and drinks. Now, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can become a patron by going to buzzsprout.com slash 385-372. That's 385-372 slash supporters slash new. And donating as little as $3 a month to help me continue delivering new material. But I also want to thank Mary T. for her absolutely too generous donations to the Rotary Club of International Exchange to bring people from other, especially young people, from other cultures, from other countries into the United States, and in particular to Reno, Nevada, to show them our culture and to share with them their cultures and their language with us. I want to really thank her. That was really nice of you. And we're very close to our goal of $2,000 to raise to bring that child next year in the 2024-2025 uh, year. So, until next time, das vidanya y spasiba za mania.